Here we go one last time. This is Motley Fool Answers. I'm Allison Southwick, joined as always by Robert Brokamp, personal finance expert and all-around good sport here at the Motley Fool. Hey, bro. Well, hello, Allison. So this week is our last episode of Motley Fool Answers as we're making the move to the new Motley Fool Money podcast starting in January. So today we're going to recount our lessons learned over the last seven years of the show. We'll, we'll read some of your emails and answer a few questions you submitted, some financial, some not. All that and probably some reminiscing on this week's episode of Motley Fool Answers. So if you were paying attention last episode, you'll remember I told you how Answers will now become a part of the new daily Motley Fool Money podcast coming in January. So this is essentially our last episode of Answers as you know it. Coming in January, you'll find us every Tuesday on the Motley Fool Money podcast. So head over there to subscribe. Seven years flies by when you're having fun. And while I admit I do tune bro out a bit when he starts talking about RMDs, I have learned a lot from him and our guests over the years. And so we thought we would share our top three lessons. Bro, do you want to go first? Sure, I'll go. Uh, I'll go first. Uh, and of course, mine are going to be probably a little bit more financial plannery than yours. Um, but my first lesson is basically curb your predictions. Now, I, like probably many people my age, I'm in the early 50s, I came in of age as an investor during the dot-com crash and then the Great Recession. And during those times of great exuberance, Robert Schiller of Yale came out with a book called Irrational Exuberance, saying that stocks were priced too high based on the cyclically adjusted price-to-earnings ratio, which is the P.E., but using instead of one-year earnings, it's previous 10 years earnings adjusted for inflation. And he said it's at an all-time high. Stocks probably are not going to do well over the next decade. Well, boy, was he right. Stocks crash, dot-com crash, recovered. Then again, the cape got high in 2007. Stocks crashed again. So people like me have been looking at the cape and basically saying like, hey, it's high. And probably you should expect that stocks will not do well over the next several years. In fact, I've been saying that pretty much since the first episode of our podcast. Well, what has happened? Well, stocks have done fabulously, fabulously. Um, Vanguard recently came out with a report basically saying the same thing. We thought stocks were not going to do so well. They've done very well. What's the reason for the error? And it's basically that investors just have become very exuberant about stocks again. We don't know yet whether it's overly exuberant. Um, But the fact of the matter is, Every Wall Street firm expected stocks to provide below average returns pretty much over the last seven years, yet they have provided exceptional returns. What's the takeaway from this? Well, as a long-term investor, it doesn't really matter so much. But it's just another example of how predictions really, it's very difficult to predict what's going to happen in the future. And the other one I'll point out to as well is that um, when the show started, the 10-year treasury was at 2.1%. And everyone, I mean, everyone expected interest rates to go up. Of course, they haven't. They dropped to 0.5% last year. They're at about 1.4% today. So again, the lesson is try to ignore predictions. Investing to a certain degree involves some amount of predictions, but really it's about investing your long-term money and living alone for as long as you can. All right. Well, my first lesson is that I am so lucky. It was on this show that I first heard you, bro, tell the story of the ovarian lottery. I mean, quite a name, but you should probably tell you should tell it. You tell it better. Well, it's not my idea. Of course, it comes from Warren Buffett. And he said it uh, in several speeches over the years, often to college students. And he's really is pointing out how lucky they are. And they say, basically, like, here's something you could do. You could continue your current life 
living as a college student in the United States, or you could basically reach into a barrel of 7 billion marbles and pull out a different marble. And that marble will determine whether you're American or Zimbabwean, male, female, rich, poor, above average intelligence, below average intelligence. You're basically trying it all over again. Now, you only have a five in 100 chance of being American again. Um, and you have, obviously, everything else is about 50-50. And if you were to give that option to most Americans, they wouldn't do it because they're already so lucky. They're already living in a country that is by far a better place to live in terms of wealth, health, utilities, electricity, water in so many ways. Buffett's overall lesson is we're all very lucky to be living the lives that we're living. And I've tried throughout the show to call attention to inequalities in this country, such as wage gaps, wealth gaps, gender gaps. It's not like I want our listeners to feel bad about their wealth, but it is easy for me personally to forget just how privileged I am. And so I do hope that we can all have a little bit more grace, a little bit more understanding for the struggles of others. Money doesn't solve all your problems. But it does pave the road and make it easier to follow the path you want for yourself. And some of us had easier roads than others. So I hope this podcast reinforced that idea for you as it did for me. All right, bro, what's your second lesson? Well, it's also, it's not very pithy and it's about as financial plannery as it comes. But basically, save 15 to 25% of your income and work as long as you can or even for just a few a few years. And I say that because the rule of thumb used to be that for retirement, you should save 10% of your income. And you can retire, you know, maybe 63 to 65, which is the average retirement age these days in America. Um, But over the course of the last seven years, we've, I've either talked about studies or we've had guests on the show to talk about studies that have found really, you should be saving these days about 15% of your income for retirement. And that includes your match. So here at The Motley Fool, if you save 9% 9% in our 401k, you get a 6% match and you hit that 15%. Um, but that's just for retirement. You might have other goals, buying a car, buying a house, saving for your kid's college education. So you really should be aiming to save 15 to 25% of your income. The bottom line really is that when it comes to money, a high savings rate solves a lot of problems. So if you can live well below your means, you're going to do pretty well. And then the work as long as you can is that as a country, most people have not saved enough. And just working three or so more years is going to do wonders for your finances. And over the last couple of years in particular, we talked on this show about the emerging evidence that retirement actually may not be very good for you, depending on your situation. Now, if you have a very physically demanding job, um, maybe it is good to retire. But for most people, that's not the case. And putting in a few more years has other benefits like social interaction, intellectual stimulation, as well as all the financial benefits. Now, if you don't like that idea, you, of course, can do something else that we've talked on the show, and that is the financial independence retire early movement, save an awful lot of your money, 50, 60% of your income, and retire early. Someone we've had on the show a few times is Sean Gates, a financial planner with Motley Fool Wealth Management. He is the ripe old age of 36, and he is retiring next January. Is he? I didn't know that. It is. Yes. I, I figured this might be news to some folks. Yeah. Okay. Good for Sean him. is retiring next January. Um he, uh, I actually hired him at The Fool back in 2014, I think, and, and he arrived at The Fool with a car and a single box of possessions, and he was saving 70% of his income. So is he going to stay retired forever? He's got a young daughter. He wants to spend as much time with her as possible. But the point being is, if you don't want to work for the rest of your life, there are other ways to do it. But I think for most of us, 
saving 15 to 25% of our income and planning to work into our 60s is probably the best strategy. So my second lesson, and we did not compare notes beforehand, so there's probably going to be some overlap here. But my second lesson is that the secret to being wealthy is to want less. And for this one, I want to thank Morgan Housel. We had him on the show so many times. He never turned us down, which I appreciate. And he said a lot of pretty things on our show. But this one is my favorite. Rick, can you roll the clip? When most people say they want to be a millionaire, what they actually mean is I want to spend a million dollars, which is the opposite of being a millionaire. If, if you see someone driving a $100,000 car, the only thing you know about their, their financial situation is that they have 100,000 fewer dollars than they did before they bought the car. That's the only thing you know about it. You don't see their bank account. You don't see their brokerage's statement. You don't see their wealth. It's not visible. Like what wealth is, is wealth is savings that you have not spent. The point here is that when you see someone has a new car or a huge house or insert whatever fancy thing here, what you don't see is the fancy things came at an expense or what void that fancy thing is trying to fill. So while someone might look rich and happy, they could in fact be having a rough go of it. So don't try to keep up with the Joneses. And on the show, Bro has also shared many stories of people who didn't make a ton of money, but were able to save and invest and leave millions of dollars to help others. Bro, one lady in particular comes to mind that you told us about. Yeah, we did a series called The Philanthropist Next Door a few years ago and highlighted a few people who scrimped and saved, saved a lot of money and did a lot of good in the world. One was Sylvia Bloom, who worked as a secretary at a Wall Street firm for 67 years. Um, she and her husband, who was a firefighter and a teacher, lived modestly um, in a rent-controlled apartment, but a nice, decent life. Um, and, and she was a secretary at a time where you basically ran your boss's lives. So when their bosses wanted to place a stock trade, she'd do that, but then she'd buy some stock of her own. Uh, and then when Sylvia died in 2016, at the age of 96, her portfolio was worth more than $9 million. And she left all of it to charity, some of it to the Henry Street Settlement for Disadvantaged Students, some to her, her alma mater, Hunter College, others ways to help disadvantaged kids improve their SATs and vis visit colleges. So really a remarkable story. All right, bro, what's your third and final lesson you wanted to share? Well, I thought about uh, something in terms of like, what are some of the mistakes I've made? over the last several years, um, and maybe things that I, I wish I would have talked more about over the show. Um, and that is something that for me personally, as a chronic, chronic procrastinator, um, is that when I look back at some of my biggest financial mistakes, they almost always come down to basically putting things off, right? Investments, I put off making, accounts I delayed opening, cash that came into my checking account, and then I thought like, oh, I should do something with that, but then I didn't, other than maybe I spent it and wasted it. Um, so I'm not as bad as I was 15 to 20 years ago. And boy, uh, anyone who is an editor for my newsletter could tell you horror stories about my difficulties with de deadlines 15 to 20 years ago. Um, so first of all, I'll just pass along some of the books that really helped me in terms of becoming more productive, especially if that's on your New Year's resolution list. The one that's a, a big uh, fan favorite here at The Motley Fool is Getting Things Done by David Allen. A lot of people know about that one. A lesser known book that is sort of a spinoff of that is Take Back Your Life um, by Sally McGee, who really applies getting things done principles to Microsoft Outlook, like how to actually implement the system. But even if you don't use Outlook, it's a great book that summarizes lots of, uh, lots of productivity principles. My all-time favorite really is a book called Eat That Frog, 21 Great Ways to Stop Procrastinating and Get More Done in Less Time uh, by Brian Tracy. And then another is Atomic Habits by James Clear. And James Clear appeared on the Rule Breaker Investing podcast on April 1st of 2020. If you want to hear a great 
discussion with um, James and David Gardner. Um, the bottom line is there's so many things that will help our finances that for some reason we put it on the to-do list and we just don't get it done. So if you can find ways to get them done, you'll feel much better. And it's crucial to remember that it does not have to be perfect. You don't have to find the perfect investment to start investing. You don't have to decide on the absolute best choice between Roth and traditional accounts to start saving for retirement. You don't have to determine the exact amount you need in life insurance to get some life insurance. Doing something, getting it done is good enough in most, in most situations. All right. Well, my third and final lesson from the last seven years is to paraphrase Chris Rock, money is about having options. So make the most of yours. Well, yes, I just told you to be wealthy. You have to spend less. But what is the point of amassing all that wealth unless you get some joy out of spending it? So find out what brings you the most joy and then spend accordingly. Maybe your dream is to swim a la Scrooge McDuck and your vault of gold great than hoard away. But otherwise, make the most of what you have while you can. Over the last few years, we all on this show had to deal with the loss of a family member or close friend. It was a rough couple years. So don't wait for retirement to live the life you want. Start now. I've got just about everything I need to make this life I lead an enjoyable thing. I've got bluebirds and poses and robins and roses, all kinds of flowers that bloom, all kinds of birds that sing. I've got all right, well, last week we told you that you could go ahead and ask us anything, and we would answer it on the podcast. Well, it turns out most of what you wanted to ask us was still financial questions. So I'll try not to take it personally that you don't actually want to know much about us as people. Uh, so we're, today we're going to do a lightning round of <laughs> financial questions and then also a couple of the more um, off-the-wall questions that you all asked us. So our first question comes from John. I've gained enough confidence in my investing that I decided to sell out of my managed mutual fund IRA and consolidated my retirement account into a self-managed IRA. Yikes. Now with about 150000 in IRA cash to invest and with the market near all-time highs, might this be a good time to pick 15 to 20 stocks and invest most of it now? Or might it be wiser to pick a couple stocks per month over the next year to buy into? I'm about 60 years old, but love my work and plan to work for another decade, God willing. Well, John, that's a really good question. All right. So you're going to be working for another decade. And once you get within five years of retirement, you should certainly start uh, building up your cash income cushion. So you do have at least five years to invest. Historically, over a five-year period, stock market makes money about 83, 85% of the time. So historical evidence would suggest that investing all at once is probably the better bet. In fact, Vanguard did a study on this and found that in about two-thirds of historical periods, it's better to invest all at once rather than space it out over 12 months. Now, I, <laughs> I talked earlier about uh, market valuations and how that often has made me nervous in the past. That's certainly the case again. Vanguard's recent report predicts that they think that the US stock market will, will return 3.3% a year over the next decade. But as I said, who knows what's going to happen? How much should you even pay attention to these? Uh, prediction. So as long as you have the risk tolerance in the time frame, it's probably okay to invest all at once. But if it makes you feel more comfortable, you can invest in thirds, which is something we talk about at The Fool often. Invest one third now, another third later, and another third as you feel more comfortable. Next question comes to Pam. I was wondering if the Roth contribution limits included all Roth accounts. Can I max out a Roth and a 401k and max out a Roth IRA in the same year? Yes, those are totally separate limits. And they, uh, the 401k limit is going up in 2022. It's 20500 
uh, with another 6,500 if you'll be 50 or better. Um, Roths are staying the same, 6,000 with another 1,000 for the 50 and older crowd. But they're totally separate limits. And since I get this question often, even in-house here at The Motley Fool, those limits when it comes to 401ks only applies to your contributions. It has nothing to do with the employer match. You don't have to try to offset some, the match with your contributions. That $20,500 limit is just uh, applies just to your contributions. Next question comes from Andrew. Hello, I started listening to the Motley Fool Answers podcast recently, and I have a question. Is there an online tool you recommend for personal finances? I'm looking for something where I can plug in retirement savings, bank accounts, etc., and play with assumptions to see when I can retire or make other important decisions. So, Andrew, uh, good news. Now, you're a new listener, so you probably did not hear our episode from March 16th, where we talked about some of the more common popular tools and I'll just list those out. That was Bunny in Excel through Microsoft. Mint, personal capital, you need a budget, Quicken, and Tiller. So you can go back and listen to that episode. And this gives me the opportunity to point out that uh, currently our plan is to keep our feeds alive for the next six months. For anyone who wants to go back to listen to any of our past episodes, you have at least six months to go back and and, and live the good old days of, of Allison and Bro talking for 30 to 45 minutes. Next question comes from Christopher. My partner and I have had a trading account with individual stocks for over a decade. Honestly, I'm tired of stock picking and was intending on just doing S&P 500 and S&P 600 index funds for our IRAs. But I heard, I think on your show, that it makes more sense to have individual stocks or things you might be trading in an IRA and your index funds in taxable brokerage accounts. So this is a topic called asset location. And I Strongly encourage you to do more research on it, but the basic premise is this. You list your investments or investment strategies according to tax efficiency. You know, at the top, you put your most tax inefficient investments. So those could be like if you're an active day trader, if you have an actively managed mutual fund that has high turnover, high yield bond fund, a fund that invests in, in real estate investment trusts. Those are very tax inefficient. So you would put them in your tax advantage retirement accounts, and then you move down the list. So now, if again, if you're if you're an active trader of individual stocks, then yes, you put that probably in an IRA. But individual stocks on their own can be very tax efficient, right? So if you buy a stock that doesn't pay a dividend and you hold on to it for decades, that's very tax efficient. It might be better to keep that at in your regular old tax taxable brokerage account. So it does take a little bit more research, but I think you are on the right track because yes, index funds are considered to be relatively tax efficient. So if you don't have room to put them in your IRAs, or if you have something else that's more tax inefficient that should be in there, it's probably okay to keep them outside of your IRAs. Next question comes from Anne. Inspired by your recent episode on real estate investment trusts, I bought my two sons the REIT ETF at Vanguard, ticker VNQ. They're both young, single college graduates and not yet buying homes or other real estate, so I thought it might be good to start them in this sector. My question is, I know that REITs must distribute profits back to investors, but why? Can this be changed with the stroke of a government pen? Well, so it is according to law that REITs, if they distribute, I believe it is 85% of their income, they get some significant tax advantages. So they do that, which is why REITs in general have higher yields than the overall stock market. Can this be changed with the stroke of a government pen? Absolutely. Does that make REITs unattractive? Not necessarily, because then maybe the companies that manage these REITs will keep more of their cash, and they'll be able to invest that in a way that increases the value of the company. So I wouldn't be too worried about that. 
I think it's a great idea that you're um, investing in REITs for your kids over the long term. Since the 70s, REITs have actually outperformed the S&P 500, and they have a slightly different up and down pattern to uh, the stock market. So it adds some diversification to your portfolio. I will say you mentioned something about how your kids don't yet have homes. And I'll often hear people say, well, I own a home, so I don't need to invest in REITs. That's not necessarily true because it's a big difference between your domestic house, your own personal residence, and commercial real estate. If you look at that Vanguard REIT ETF, it invests in offices, in malls, in hospitals, in storage units, in cell towers. So very, very different types of investments. And our next question comes from Benjamin. And it's just in time for the holidays. I am a proud uncle of a darling niece and nephew. This year for Christmas, I was trying to set up custodial accounts for them so that I could give them specific stocks. But I found the process at Fidelity rather complicated. It seems rather easy to open a custodial account for a minor, but then if anyone other than the account's custodian wants to gift a specific stock, their only option is to transfer the cash into the account and then ask the account custodian to make the purchase of the specific stock. That's okay, I guess, but my brother is the person most likely to end up being custodian of the accounts, and he is not too keen on investing. I worried that my brother would see it as a bit of a chore and would be more likely to just put all the money gifted into a mutual or index fund, or worse, just let the money sit there. I want to get my niece and nephew excited about investing in specific companies, but I also want to preserve family harmony and not give my brother more work to do. What would you suggest as the easiest, most hassle-free way to gift specific stocks to minors? Well, first of all, aren't you a wonderful uncle for doing that? Um, you. I'm not sure if you spoke with someone at Fidelity about the custodian issue, but um, as far as I can tell, and I actually called Fidelity to get the answer, the parents don't have to be the custodian. So you can open the custodial account for the kids and still serve as the custodian, at least based on my research. Um, so that's a good thing. Um, I will point out, though, that uh, it could get a little complicated because if the kids do particularly well in these uh, in these accounts, there will be some tax issues that could affect your brother. Probably not. They would have to do very well, but it's just something to consider. Also, once you give the money to the kids, it's their money. It's a custodian account, and then they can take it over when they're adults. It will count as their assets if they apply for financial aid for college, and anything any asset that is owned by the kids will have a, a bigger effect on financial aid eligibility. So those are a couple of considerations. So what is an alternative? An alternative could be that you just open up two brokerage accounts on your own, in your name. You buy the stocks. You tell your niece and nephew, these are your accounts. I'm going to give you these accounts when you're old enough and you decide the age or whatever it is. But then you control it. You can show them the, the statements. You could ask their help in picking the stocks. Your um, brother doesn't get involved. It doesn't things make more comp. It very doesn't make things more complicated with him. And then when you feel it's appropriate, you just give them the stocks. It's very easy to do that. Your cost basis generally becomes their cost basis, uh, and that way you have much more control over when they get it because it may turn out that one or both of them really aren't ready to get the money once they reach adulthood, and it might be better for you to have control over those accounts for a little bit longer. It does mean though that the investments will show up on your tax return, so just be aware of that. All right. And now for the more anything questions of the Ask Me Anything. In the spirit of the season, we're going to go with some somewhat holiday-related questions. And our first one comes from Steve in New Jersey. Bro, what's your favorite Christmas movie and why? 
Oh man, that's almost impossible. It's like choosing your favorite children. So I'm not going to choose. I'm going to say the classics, right? The old ones, of course, It's a Wonderful Life. I'm a huge fan of Holiday Inn, which came out in 1942. And that's where the song White Christmas first appeared. The, the movie White Christmas didn't show up until 12 years later. Um, as a kid who grew up in the 70s, loved the Rankin and Bass stuff and all the goofball characters, Heat Miser, Cold Miser, Burger Meister, Meister Burger, all of them. Uh, of more modern movies, it's got to be Elf. I'm just a huge Elf fan. And you, Allison? You know, I'm not I'm not really a big holiday movie buff. Um, I can tell you I hate love actually with a passion, with an absolute fiery passion for lots of reasons. I don't hate reasons. it with a passion, but I don't understand the people who love it. I don't know. I don't even understand the people who wrote it. They're like, that is some serious narcissist <laughs> garbage going on there. Narcissist misogyny. It's just all in, in love, actually. Oh, the worst. But I do like the movie Scrooged, which is also pretty awful because it came out in the 80s. But Bill Murray is just so funny in that movie. So I would have to say my favorite is probably Scrooged. And just try to just roll your eyes at the parts that are so 80s and kind of cringeworthy these days. All right, Rick. But I also want to hear what's your favorite Christmas movie or holiday movie? So, Allison, I, I will double down on Scrooge. I think that's a really good choice. Carol Kane especially is is excellent in that movie. Um, and Bobcat Goldthwait. I mean, come I on. I know, right? Yeah. But these days, everybody loves, you know, Christmas movies that aren't Christmas movies. Die Hard, of course, is the classic. Everybody argues, is it a Christmas movie? Is it, isn't it? And I don't have an answer to that. But if people want to watch a Christmas movie that's not really a Christmas movie, but takes place during Christmas, then screw Die Hard. I say watch The Lion in Winter with Katherine Hepburn and Anthony Hopkins and Timothy Dalton and all kinds of people in that movie. And it's all about uh, Henry II and his incredibly dysfunctional family and, and Catherine Hepburn's in the tower and they let her out for Christmas and then everybody fights with each other and it's all knives. It's great. It's a really great movie. It takes place during Christmas. Other than that, it has nothing to do with Christmas, but better than Die Hard. There you go. Wow. Deep cut. Okay. Okay. <laughs> well, the next question, uh, we're going to stay on the holiday theme. And Jeanette and Andy, who have been listening since day one, want to know, what is the best dessert? Well, I got to go with grasshopper pie, which has an Oreo pie crust with this minty, marshmallowy mousse filling. Absolutely love it. Rick, how about you? I'm not a big dessert person. I tend to like things that are really rich, dark chocolate things, but only a very, very small portion. Uh, chocolate raspberry combination is good. Mm. I like pies better than cake. I don't know. Don't have a good answer for you. All right. Uh, my answer is going to be a pavlova. Have you ever had a pavlova? I have never have, but it's it makes meringue me with like a passion fruit curd and whipped cream and berries. And it's chewy and crunchy and sweet and sour and... Mm. I could go for a pavlova right about now. All right, Rick, before we go here, do you have a lesson from seven years of doing this podcast? Uh, yeah, I've learned a lot of things. Some of them financial, like sweat the big stuff and automate everything. Um, some of them like, you know, life stuff, like if you don't want to deal with finance, but you have to, then just get a job where you get to hang out with really smart and kind people who know about this stuff and it'll just fall into place. It's great. But most importantly, the thing I learned is that Bro and Allison at half speed sound drunk. <laughs> <laughs>
This is Motley Fool Answers. I'm Allison Southwick, and I'm joined, as always, by Robert Brokamp, personal finance expert here at the Motley Fool, and advisor on the Motley Fool's Rule Your Retirement newsletter. Get some! Absolutely. <laughs> Hi, everybody. The irony, of course, is that I've never been drunk. So if you want to hear it, that's the only way to hear it. Well, thank you to everyone who wrote in with your questions. Um, and also, if those of you who wrote in and reminisced on your favorite moments, such as Bro and Allison at half speed, or at the time I accused New Hampshireans of drinking like 500 gallons of whiskey a year. And thank you for enjoying the the different episodes and series that we did. So thank you, everyone, for sending your your kind words. And also many thanks to all of our faithful listeners out there, like PT and John from Queens and Calvin, Rich, Bob, Joseph, and so many more of you out there who have stuck around with us for all these years. So, bro, do you have any parting words? Just a lot of gratitude. Um, you know, Rick just talked about how being here at the Motley Fool is being surrounded by kind and smart people, which is true. I, I remember when I joined the Fool in 1999, I was just marveled uh, to be able to be a part of, of a group of people of really super bright, but super good hearted people. But I really feel that the fool is that way. And it's, ref it reflects our audience. I feel so fortunate to have been able to read hundreds of maybe actually thousands at this point of emails from you all, where you tell us your life story, share your finances, and you're basically trusting us to give you a good answer. And, and, and if there's one thing I feel bad about, it's that I was not able to answer everyone's questions or respond to everyone's Christmas traditions or, or everyone's nice comment. Uh, I just feel very fortunate. And we wouldn't have this great job and this great company if it weren't for all of you who tune in to listen or read our articles or subscribe to our services. So truly, thank you so much. Uh, and the good news is it's not over. You know, we will, be, we will continue just in a different form at Motley Fool Money starting in January. Okay, one last time. Well, that's the show. It's edited finally by Rick Engdahl. Don't forget to subscribe to Motley Fool Money because you'll find us there every Tuesday starting in January. And our email will continue to be answers at fool.com. For Robert Brokamp, I'm Allison Southwick. Stay foolish, everybody.